Hebrews chapter 13 this morning. It's kind of an interesting text as you're making your way through. Remember that when the original letter was published, there were no verse and chapter breaks. So the last thing that he has said is, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Moves right in to that theme. We're in the context of running the race well. We come to the last stretch of a long commitment. He says in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Last week we talked about the bell lap. It's the last leg of a long run. On the bell lap, it's the back stretch of the track that separates real runners from the also-rans. That sudden rush of adrenaline that came with the ringing of the bell is now gone, and it now comes down simply to who wants it more. The lungs are depleted. The legs, if they can still be felt, feel just like elastic rubber. It takes intentional effort to pull the drooping arms up and back into action. It's on the back stretch that determination to finish well must be called out. We come to the back stretch of the book of Hebrews and he throws in six countercultural challenges, practical Christian living issues that he spent. 11 chapters talking about theological foundation, and he's going to wrap it up on the last part of chapter 13, going back to theological centrality, but here he just gets really down practical. What does it look like to be followers of Jesus? And it means you live counterculturally in your family, with your hospitality and your possessions, in body life, in your marriage in the management of your money, in your sense of never being alone. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 6, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he who has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, as we read together, Psalm 118, verse 6, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Of all the texts in Hebrews, I thought this would be the easiest one to preach. It turns out it's probably the most challenging. Perhaps it's because I've only got three more Sundays to irritate and agitate you. I don't know. 
This morning, again, I want to speak more pastorally than theologically, although I promise you that it is rooted in good doctrinal discipline. First thing we recognize is that we are a family. Let brotherly love continue. We are members of the same family because we have the same father. God is our father by faith in his son, the finished work of his son, the Lord Jesus. You enter into the family both by adoption as well as by being born again, born into the family. There's this dual picture that flows through the scriptures. In Romans chapter 8 and again in Galatians chapter 4, he said, now we have received adoption as sons whereby we have the freedom to call him Abba, Father, that is, Daddy, Daddy. But in the context, keep in mind, just because He is our Father and we have this close, intimate friendship with Him, we don't compromise our reverence and awe of Him. Because as the immediate preceding line says, He is a consuming fire. But then He talks about unselfish living in the family. Let brotherly love continue. And we, we have a tendency to think in terms of love as just kind of this squishy, kind of emotional thing. But here it is that, that sacrificial commitment that we make intentionally to give of my own freedom and my own preferences to meet the needs represented in those of other members of the family. So this kind of love is a demanding kind of love. For illustrations, you'll see on each of the slides portraits of members of my own family. I warned you that was coming, and uh, you say, what does this have to do with the sermon? Probably nothing, but just proud of the family. This is my first congregation. 29 years ago, uh, we had three children, two of whom were married. And we had one grandchild. She was three months old. In the last 29 years, we have added to the family significantly in that we now have nine grandchildren, five great-grandchildren, and over that period of time, we have buried all four of our parents, my brother and our daughter. When it talks about family and loving one another, we have experienced as a family the love of a church family. We have navigated through life together. He says in Romans chapter 12, let love be genuine. It's easy to fake care. It's hard to give the real thing. The reason I point out to my family as my first congregation is, is that you, the only place you can't fake it for the long haul, is in your home. So for all of those who have been Sunday school teachers or youth sponsors with their own children there or pastors where your family sits under, you realize that whatever you are up there, that's what people perceive the reality to be. But the only people that know for certain who you are are those who live in your home. It's your family. So let love be genuine. Love one another with a brotherly affection. The emotions are involved. And then outdo one another in showing honor. 
1 Thessalonians 4 put it this way. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for reminder, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So when you took a picture of all the grandkids and the great-grandkids, what we call the babies of the family were not present. They are now 18, 18, and 17. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Our family had a couple of holy rollers in it. There was sweat equity days at Faith Bible Church when these walls didn't even have drywall on them. 1 Peter chapter 3 it says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. One of the unfortunate traditions in our family over the last number of years has been a Halloween celebration. I'm sure that's offensive to many of you. It wasn't, didn't start out as an intended tradition. It's just that Rob and Kimberly were in Chicago at, uh, at Trinity Seminary at the time, and... Uh, Steve and Amy were here, and Anna and Elise were only two grandchildren, and the adults decided they should go out for dinner when Rob and Kimberly were back from Chicago and leave the babies with us, and Linda kicked me out of the house and decided that she would throw a Halloween party because it was Halloween, and it became a tradition. Our last Halloween party was, I think, two years ago. All of them were adults, but they insisted. But what the Nana did is she dressed up as a surprise uh, character every year. In this particular one, she decided to be the Witch of Endor. She painted herself green. She forgot to check that you're supposed to put some kind of a cream on your skin before you go green. The party was Friday night. I've kicked out of the house again. We spent way too much money and we decorated. I made all of the gingerbread houses and everything for the evening. And the doorbell rang, and she had forgotten that she was teaching Danny Noonan's daughter piano and had rescheduled a makeup lesson for that Friday. So a 10-year-old stood at the door, saw a witch answer it, and ran to the car in a panic. <laughs> Did her 30-minute piano lesson doing this continually. First John chapter 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Beloved, if God loves us, we also ought to love one another. Five great grandbabies and counting. Second Peter chapter 1 says it this way, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, and brotherly affection with love. What's the point? Here he very simply says, let brotherly love continue. In making that declaration, he reinforces what has been spoken through all of the epistle writers. Every one of them said that commitment to sacrificially caring for one another is the essential mark of a true believer. If those who know you best do not know you as someone who, at personal sacrifice, cares for others, then they have reason to raise question as to the authenticity 
of your profession. Because Jesus says, or, or, or John said in John, 1 John 4, that we love because he first loved us. So I would say that as a church, as we move forward, that the one mark that ought to characterize us for those that observe us, and especially for those of us that are in the family, just as a, a preacher cannot be one thing on a platform and everything at home and think that his family is going to walk with the Lord. So we as a church cannot be one thing in expression and verbalization and a different thing in practice and expect that God will bless us and grow us forward. Then the next thing he says is then, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. He says that your heart and your home are to be available as ministry resources. As I said before, when Faith Bible Church was birthed on that first Sunday at Union College, Amy was playing the piano and Anna Marie was a three-month-old in a basket uh, by the piano. She is now a mother of two and a pastor's wife in Grand Island and an amazing accomplished vocalist and musician. When he talks about the heart and the home and hospitality, he uses the illustration of Abraham and Sarah. That's the allusion to entertaining angels unaware. And it's in Genesis chapter 18. And they had three unexpected guests arrive at their compound. And they immediately told them to be seated in the shade and they would prepare for them. And if you go back and read in Genesis chapter 18, what they did was they served them their very best. They didn't just give them cold cuts from the refrigerator, but they actually slaughtered the finest of their livestock, prepared fresh bread and all of that for three people they didn't even know. The point of hospitality is not that you put out your fine china and, and your cloth napkins and plan for three weeks to invite someone over for an evening's entertainment. But hospitality is simply the readiness to take whatever resource God has entrusted to your care and to use it to meet the needs of others when they are spontaneously made evident. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 25 when he said, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. It's not usually premeditated, calculated. It's just simply that the heart says that whatever I have belongs to him and whatever he brings my way, which is bottom line of a number of years ago, they decided that I would not sit on the benevolent team. <laughs> simply because somebody came and they had a need and we had money, I figured it was a perfect match. And they felt like there maybe ought to be a little bit more filter to that. 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another. Watch this word without grumbling. We're not put out by the needs God brings our way. 
as one of your pastors over the years, I would say that one of the great hallmarks of Faith Bible Church has been the spontaneous generosity. Whenever a need was identified, you have run over each other in order to meet it. I trust that by God's grace we continue to live that way. That, that we would live open-handedly, compassionately, and responsively. According to 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is to be the character of elders that lead the church. That they are, they are known as those who freely use the resources they have been blessed with in order to meet needs. And the third one, then, is, is this body life thing. So again, brotherly love is contrary to the culture. It was every man for himself. Don't neglect showing hospitality. Jesus would confront them and say, why is it that you only invite people over for a dinner that can afford to invite you back as a repayment? Invite those who can give you nothing in return. All countercultural. And then this third one, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. This, this one body concept, this, this, this unity of the faith. Those in prison. I, I'm, I'm a strong supporter of prison ministries. And we, we, we were one of the first churches to sign on with Good News Prison and Jail Ministries. And we've continued to be involved with them. Sheldon introduced himself to me many years ago, and I loved what he was doing. But I would just say this, as a, as a Bible reader, that when you go to a prison fundraiser, the texts that are used to support the ministry are a secondary application, not the primary. When the Bible talks about ministering to those in prison, and we don't understand it, but some of our brothers and sisters from Russia and Ukraine and other places do, it's, it's those who are incarcerated because of their relentless commitment to the faith. It's Eric and Adriana who he spent, what, four and a half years unjustly in a Mexican prison, and God did that. We couldn't understand it, but even today they have a Bible institute going in, in a high-security cartel-centric prison because he was incarcerated for four and a half years unjustly. In his case and in their cases, that the only way that their needs could be met is if someone brought them food, clothing, and all that they needed. The, the, the prison system didn't have a provision for prisoners' rights and things like that. So when he says here, remember those who are in prison, he is speaking of those who have been arrested and incarcerated because they are relentless with the gospel. Ephesians chapter 4 says there is one body, there is one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your calling. We cannot say that's their problem, that's not my problem. So I hope that you have received continually updates from the voice of the martyrs and that those who are on the front lines for the sake of the gospel are relentless in sharing the good news, but they are paying a horrible price. They're part of us. 
We're one body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26 says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It starts, that's why it starts with let brotherly love continue. It's not about me, it's about us. The me becomes a we, and when my brother or sister are going through a trial, it is a call to us to respond however we can. They had been doing that. In chapter 10, he said, he's here saying, don't forget to keep doing that. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. My takeaways from reading the text is simply this. True discipleship is costly. For us, it may just cost us a job promotion or two or some discomfort with the neighbors because they think we're Jesus freaks or something. But around the world, the cost of following Christ is costly. I had coffee with a former, he just now retired as an AT&T corporate executive 26 years ago. He was already making six figures. He left the corporate world to become a children's ministry pastor in two different churches. But one of the things he delighted in telling me the story was when he took people into foreign countries, countries you couldn't enter in for the sake of missions and sharing the gospel. So he and some of the guys from his church in Cedar Rapids decided to sign up for a marathon in a country that where the Muslims were in control. And if you were even caught with the Bible, you were shot on sight. You weren't even allowed to just go to jail. They would actually kill you. And so they went over there under the guise of running the marathon. And he said, we, we ran it, but we got done. And at the finish line, he said, if they hear an English voice, they just want to hear English spoken. And so they, they, were, they, they used an interpreter, said they, they wanted to hear him read and all he had was a new testament and so he, he whips out his new testament in a country you can get shot on and he said i told the guy I said you watch the edge if you see anybody with a gun i'm hitting the floor and he's just reading the new testament and there's an interpreter there and the crowd is getting larger and larger and he said it was just like the spirit of god and people started getting saved so we don't understand what it means to be totally committed to the body if one member suffers, we all suffer. None of us is exempt. As you know, Linda had surgery on her foot a few weeks ago, and her whole body has been complaining ever since. She doesn't sit well. When one member of the body suffers, you, you, you get that on your own body, but we forget about it that we are a body, and when one of us is hurting, we're all hurting. The body needs to heal the body. None of us must ever be forgotten. The fourth one is holy matrimony. This was horribly countercultural in their day, even more so now in our day. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. By marriage bed, he's talking about the intimate relationship between a man and a woman. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterers. Your translation probably says, will judge the fornicator and the adulterer. 
Let marriage be held in honor by all. If ever culturally we're facing the pressure, it's in this area. The demands to redefine what is a marriage. What is an acceptable marriage. We can't even define what is gender-specific. The pressure is to wait for gender-reveal parties until the 16th birthday. Marriage is not a construct of the culture. It is a creation of God. Genesis chapter 2, For this cause a man should leave his father and mother and would cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. When challenged on that in Matthew chapter 19 by the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus responded in this way, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Every other gender was created by politicians. And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. Ephesians chapter 5. After Paul's great application of what does it mean to do Christian marriage, wife submitting to husband, husband loving in a submissive servant way your wife, he ends it by saying, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ in the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you love his wife as he loves himself. Let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. The pressure that we as a church going forward is going to be on going soft on these definitions. We need to be gracious, sympathetic, and compassionate. But for heaven's sakes and the sake of the generations that follow, we need to be clear. God has a wonderful plan. The boundaries God puts on sexual relationships are not God's attempt to restrict pleasure, but rather to protect us. And for the sake of the next generation, we need to be clear that God's wonderful plan is not archaic, and it's not gone out of relevancy, and we have to adapt to the times. Well, at the same time, loving them sacrificially for the gospel's sake. We need a healthy re-reading of the Song of Solomon, a marriage that's been made in heaven. I can still remember when Pastor George was, before he joined our team, he was still teaching at Lincoln Christian, and he and I decided to team up and teach a Sunday school class on the Song of Solomon, those eight glorious chapters, and we were talking about it in an elder meeting once, and one of the elders said, I read it, I haven't got a clue what it's about. So we, we tried to explain it to him. After we got done with that, it, the response to it was so good that, that I told Pastor Mike, I said, you, you need to teach this book to the youth group. 
And he goes, oh, I can't do that. So I'll help you. He thought what I meant was I would show up and help do some of the teaching. What I meant was I would get him prepared to do the teaching. You need to teach that book to your children. God's charge against the nation of Israel was that they were a faithless bride. You read about it in the book of Hosea, again in the book of Ezekiel, and again in Jeremiah. But the New Testament picture is that the church is the bride of Christ. God forbid that we as a church could ever be called by Him a faithless bride. Simple principles are this. Moral sins are never private sins. We're part of the body of Christ. We're part of a family and other relationships. I'll never forget 1986, sitting at Devaney Sports Center for the Fellowship Christian Athletes Banquet. Jason Thacker was receiving the High School Athlete of the Year Award, and his dad had asked me to join him at the banquet. And Pat Williams, who was at that time the general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers, preached on the story of Joseph. So all the people with money are sitting there eating food on the floor, and then all the youth are up in the, up in the stands. They didn't get food. They just got to hear the message. I met Wendell and Marie that, that night, first time. Never forget Pat Williams said, Joseph lost his coat in order to keep his character. All these years later, I can close my eyes and see him saying that. But there's a word of hope for the redeemed. There's grace provided for those who have already failed in this area. In John chapter 8, they drag a woman caught, they said to Jesus, in the act of adultery, which means there had to be somebody else involved in this. They drag her to Jesus' feet, throw her in humiliation before him, and said, what should we do? And Jesus said, whichever one of you is without sin, you throw the first stone. My dad said when he got to heaven, he was going to ask Jesus what he was writing in the dust. John doesn't say. But after a while, Jesus looked up and there is no accuser left. And he looked at her and he said, is there no one to condemn you? And she said, none, Lord. And he said, neither do I. Don't miss this. Go your way and sin no more. Or there's the spine-chilling story of Hosea. I was thinking about that this week as the, as the succession search team is looking for my replacement. If Hosea submitted his resume, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't make it past the first read. He's a minister for God, and God instructed him to marry a woman with a bad reputation. And he did. And then she was unfaithful to him, and she had a child conceived by an adulterous relationship, and then another one, and he took her in, and then finally, finally she had wasted herself to where no one was interested in her at all. And he went down to the slave market, and he bid the opening bid for a slave. The lowest bid you could offer is this, and he bid it, and he took her home, 
And he said to her, You will not be as me, as a wife to me, and I will not be as a husband to you for many days. Why? So that they could be purified and proven. And God told that true story. He had that object lesson lived out to remind his faithless bride, Israel, that all you need to do is come home. I'll cover you with unbelievable grace. And who can escape the reality that Rahab, who is called in the soft translation in every text, Rahab the harlot, or in my translation, Rahab the prostitute, every time her name is mentioned, that's what she is called, except in Matthew 1, when she is listed as one of the great-grandmothers of Jesus. So we as a church, as we hold uncompromisingly to the beauty of God's created marriage and the purity of the sexual relationship within it, that we hold it with a spirit of grace and kindness and redemptive love. That God offers covering grace to all who will come to Him. And then the most challenging of this for my family in that uh, when, when I submitted my resignation, Linda said, now you understand they're not going to put money in your checking account in May, right? You do understand there's, there's some implications to what you just did. So we've grappled a bit with can we trust God for the future or not? And we come to chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In their culture, it was every man get accumulate all that he can and hold it stingily and selfishly. And he is warning against this, this idol called greed or covetousness. In the Bible, there are 500 verses that deal with prayer and faith. There are 2,350 Bible verses that deal with wealth and money. 40% of the parables that Jesus taught include illustrations or lessons on money. This area might be, for Americans at least, the number one challenge to our finishing the race well. In his counterfeit God's book, and if you don't have a copy of Timothy Keller's Counterfeit Gods, get yourself one. Rich reading. But in his chapter on money, he says the one idol no one believes they worship is the god of greed. Greed hides itself from the victim. The money god's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. So the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, who is pastoring a church, a revitalization ministry, in the wealthy city of Ephesus, in the sixth chapter, says, this is what I want you to tell the rich people to do with their money. Remind them that if they have food and clothing, with that they should be content. That they came into the world naked and they're going to go out of the world naked. They're not bringing anything with them and they're not going to take anything out with them. Therefore, remind them that God will provide for them and take their money and send it ahead. 
So they can save their money and they can become rich, but it's rich for eternity. This evening in that Steadfast Church in Omaha, I'm speaking to the youth group and their parents out of Philippians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul thanks the church at Philippi for having remembered him because others had not. But he didn't say, I'm not, I'm not complaining because I have learned to be content in whatever state I'm in. I used to think that that meant moving from Texas to Nebraska and God would content your soul. It just simply means, he said, I've learned to do with much and I've learned to do with nothing. I'm content. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 6, the danger of money, wealth, and the desire to gain possessions when he says that there are three weeds that will choke out the seed of the gospel in your life. The weed of anxiety, worry, the weed of wealth accumulation, and the weed of whoopee, the expression of pleasure to satisfy some missing thing in the soul. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, why are you anxious about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear? Look at the birds. They don't worry about lunch. Look at the flowers. The fields don't worry about what they're going to wear. Your heavenly Father already knows you have need of these things. Jesus talked about a rich young ruler. He said, Lord, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And knowing his heart and the gods that he bowed before, he said, take all of your money, sell it, give it to the poor, and follow me, and you'll have eternal life. And he went away grieved because he had much money. Colossians 3.5 and Ephesians 5.5 said that greed is a form of idolatry. Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told about a wealthy, successful farmer in a bumper crop year. And he harvested his crops and he tore down his old barns and he built bigger barns and he filled them full of all of the harvest. And he said, now it's time to chill. And the Lord said to him, you fool, don't you know that tonight your soul is required from you? The problem with the greedy is that he is defined by his possessions. So that if he loses his treasures, he ends up feeling like he's a nobody. One author said, lovers of money fantasize about new ways to make more money, new possessions they can buy. And they look jealously at those who have more than they do. Those who trust their money feel that they are safe. Because they feel like they are in control of their own lives. They're secure in their wealth. Proverbs speaks of that over and over. Your wealth is your high fortress. If you live for your money... You have become a slave to your money. The amazing thing is the inversion is how quickly our possessions possess us and they dictate our every action. The dollars are seated on the throne of our heart where the Lord ought to reside. One of the greatest stories, I was flashing back to when we preached through the book of Luke, Zacchaeus awakened one day to realize that he had become materially rich but spiritually bankrupt. He went seeking Jesus, and he thought that he had asked Jesus to come into his life, only to discover that it was Jesus who had asked Zacchaeus to come into his life. And when Zacchaeus found Jesus, he found out that he had more money than he needed. There are three reasons people want more money. 
One is in order to be in control of their own world and their life. There's a sense of, a sense of I, I can manage this. Second is to position themselves in social settings so that other people see them as attractive or desirable. We call it the best friends money can buy. Regrettably, it also creates a sense of power and influence over others. And I'm thinking about Luke chapter 16. With the poor man Lazarus laid at the gate and the rich man throwing parties day after day. He never one time looked upon the poor man with any spirit of compassion whatsoever. The more I get the studies show, the more I accumulate, the less compassionate my spirit becomes. There's a cauterizing effect to wealth. Jesus gave up his eternal wealth to become poverty-stricken so he could make us rich. If Jesus had stayed rich, we would have to die poor. If he was willing to die poor, we could become eternally rich. If we would root out the idol of money from our soul, we must not only remove it, but we must replace it with the one who, though he was rich, for our sake became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. And quickly, we're never alone. In the midst of the pressure, the tribulation, the trials, the longing to go back to a safe, comfortable zone, the apostle writes to them and said, you are not alone. Matthew 28, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? I have to tell you a, a humorous family story. 29 years ago, I was meeting with the leadership team of my former ministry. It was a rather contentious meeting. We knew that going in, and uh, Linda was at home praying and quite concerned. Our daughter, this is with Jesus now, was 15 years old at the time, and un she just spontaneously came across the hallway into, into her mom's room and said, Mom, listen to what I was reading in my devotions. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can that man do to me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was funnier to us, I guess. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light, my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Or Psalm 56, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? In this area of all of these, many of us struggle, as did Asaph in Psalm 73, where he said, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I've bit my tongue, but my heart is struggling with the injustice. And then he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, this is the text that Don Marie went to in the last months of her losing battle for cancer. She read every morning, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, they may fail. But God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you, they perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your wonderful works. On the bell lap, it's the back stretch of the track that separates the real runners from the also ran. That sudden rush of adrenaline that came from the ringing of the bells gone. And now comes simply who wants it more. 